asked to do a keynote for a workshop weekend in Shugan Falls. Yeah. And I saw that Anne was going to be there. And when I went up to do my keynote speech, I looked at Anne. And the first thing I said was, she doesn't know this, but I've been in love with Anne Hood for 20 years. <laughs> I had never heard of this guy. I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, usually people say they're in love with me. I know them. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> But I have to say it was another maybe 10 years before we were both at the Miami Book Fair. Mm-hmm. At, at that Chagrin Falls event, we exchanged whatever it was back then, emails or whatever. But we very rarely connected Close with path. each other. You know, I, if I was going to be, I looked him up and I realized, oh, well, this guy's pr- pr- pretty well known. So if I was going to be in a city and I wanted a restaurant recommendation, I might text him or something. But it was really very infrequent. And about 10 years later, we were at the Miami Book Fair together. And Michael said, I see you're here. Do you want to have a cocktail? And I remember I had a dinner. So like we squeezed in this hour. And in that hour, we learned that we both had apartments in New York City around the corner from each other. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. This is one we have really been looking forward to. You know we love to explore all kinds of facets of storytelling, and today we're really diving in, getting it from several angles. We're so excited to be welcoming best-selling authors Anne Hood and Michael Ruhlman to talk about their latest books, their lives, and so much more. Think of it as your Friends in Fiction happy hour. I am Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel, and I'm here to advocate for them all being happy hours. Yes. That's, I think we should always be doing that. Anne Hood is the author of 11 books, including the best-selling novels The Book That Matters Most and The Knitting Circle, and the memoirs Comfort, A Journey Through Grief, and Kitchen Yarns, Notes on Life, Love, and Food. Her most recent releases are Fly Girl, a memoir, which I absolutely loved, and just out is Clementine, a young adult follow-up to her poignant Jude Banks superhero. Please visit Anne's website, annhood.us, for much more about her creative life. New York Times bestselling author Dennis Lehane says of her latest book, Fly Girl is a sheer pleasure, a hilarious and often moving look back at a bygone era and a young woman's coming of age. Michael Ruhlman is the author of award-winning cookbooks and nonfiction narratives. He's the author of Chef Thomas Keller's seminal French Laundry Cookbook, as well as the highly successful series about the training of chefs, the making of a chef, the soul of a chef, and the reach of a chef. Go get them and read them. You will not be sorry. He's also the author of The Elements of Cooking and Ratio. There's so much more about his varied career available at ruhlman.com. That's R-U-H-L-M-A-N.com. His newest book has been hailed by none other than Alton Brown, saying, Once again, Michael Ruhlman brings order and reason to a culinary realm once ruled by confusion and madness. The Book of Cocktail Ratios is the cocktail book most of us never knew we needed. 
What is unique about our guests today is that in addition to their successful writing careers, they also share a marriage and homes in Rhode Island and New York City. It's a huge honor to welcome you both today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This is so fun. We actually were going to do something before the pandemic, so I'm so glad that we finally got this all together. I shouldn't say the P word. I guess I shouldn't say that anymore, (laughs) but the the P word. But there's so much to both of your stories, both individually and collectively. And we decided that we would start with what your latest books are about and a little background of those. And so, of course, we had to decide. So we're going to go alphabetically for this. So Anne, you are up first. Let's chat about First Fly Girl, a memoir. Can you share how you decided to publish that memoir and talk a little bit about the content? So Fly Girl is about my eight years as a flight attendant for TWA at the end of the golden age of travel to the beginning of, well, how it is now. I don't know the terrible (laughs) age of travel. I was hired for TWA in 1978, right out of college, and I flew until 1986. And, you know, it was an amazing time to be a flight attendant, an amazing time to be a young woman, you know, with feminism really blooming, yet traditional things still existing. And I always see the job as kind of a metaphor for that time for women, because on the one hand, flight attendants were getting better pay. The job was becoming professionalized, but we were also very much still viewed as sex kittens and glorified waitresses and taught to perch on the armchairs of first-class passengers when we took their drink orders. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Wow. What a a different time we're in now, huh? Yes. Yes. You know, one of the things you talk about in Fly Girl is that despite the image people might have of flight attendants in the 60s and 70s, like you just mentioned, they were actually very important in the fight for women's rights. I loved reading that or rather listening to it. I listened to the audiobook, which you narrate, I believe. Yes. Can you talk to us a bit about the role flight attendants and especially TWA flight attendants played? You know, from the very first flight attendant, flight attendants have, have fought for women's rights. That person, not called a flight attendant back then, of course, was called a, a fly girl or a Sky Girl, either one, Ellen Church was actually a pilot. She had her pilot's license back in the 20s. And she just knew that aviation was the future. And she tried to get hired as a pilot for the airline that later became United. But they laughed her out of the office, but she was so determined to get on those airplanes. She was a registered nurse. And so she convinced uh, the, the vice president of that airline that there should be registered nurses on the plane. And she and seven of her friends in their nurses' uniforms became the first flight attendants. Now, in those days when there were layovers, the flight attendants slept on the airplane and the pilots in oh. hotel rooms. So I think this is the earliest form of women's <laughs> rights I know of for in, in aviation. They fought for the right to share a room with three others and ultimately two others and ultimately have their own room just like the pilots. But of course, more importantly, flight attendants won the right to keep their job after the age of 32. Originally, they had to leave when they turned 32, because as TWA said, if a man doesn't want them by the time they're 32, neither does TWA. Then they fought for the right to keep their job when they got married. That happened in the 60s, the late 60s, to keep their job when they had children. They won that right in the 80s. And the final frontier getting rid of the weight requirement, which didn't happen until the 1990s. Wow. In fact, as you know, from reading the book, my very own lovely roommate was fired for being five pounds overweight in 1979. 
yeah. overweight. <laughs> you know, she was so thin. <laughs> um, I'd like to interject on a more personal level of, of all of this, which is to say that flight attendants have often been maligned for being airheaded or whatever. They, right, uh, right. Anne is so convincing in the book about how it made her. What all the things that being a flight attendant gave her. Yes, she did put up with sexism, chronic sexism, but it taught her how to travel. It taught her how to deal with strangers, negotiate foreign countries where she didn't speak the language. She said many times, it was the making of me. Yes. It's, that comes through so clearly throughout the book and by the end. You get, but I can't imagine ever living in that world. Like, Can you imagine trying to anybody get away, try to get away with that now? No. <laughs> they'd be thrown to corporate. <laughs> so, so in that same vein, Fly Girl isn't just a book about life as a flight attendant, of course. It's also a book about the making of an author and perhaps more importantly, the making of a, as Michael said, well-rounded and wise young woman. Can you talk to us about those lessons that you learned on the job and how they shaped the course of the rest of your life? Oh, sure. Apps. I love talking about that. I was hired when I was 21. I was from a small town in the smallest state, Rhode Island. So naive. I had done a little bit of traveling on my own because I always had a bit of wanderlust, but I really didn't know a lot about anything. And I got this job. It, you know, it was my dream job because I wanted to be a writer since I was eight. But I also knew that I didn't have a lot to write about. I had such a sheltered you know, existence. And I thought I could be a flight attendant and have adventures and see the world, and it would give me fuel for stories, you know? And But off I went to Kansas City for training, immediately learning how little I knew about anything, and how, how actually, although I was great in the interviews, and I really did love the idea of the job, I was kind of an introvert. And so it taught me how to talk to people. It gave me poise and confidence. I have to tell you, walking across Terminal 5 at JFK in my Ralph Lauren uniform as part of a 747 crew... If that didn't give me confidence, nothing would ever because heads <laughs> turned, you know, there were like 18 of us. Heads turned and we were taught how to walk and how to look professional, how to smile at people, how to talk to people, how to get on that airplane. And although I don't literally get on an airplane every day, I never thought part of being a writer was talking to people and going places you, you know, you're unfamiliar with. So without that job, I would probably be that writer. I'd be more like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, unknown and alone working in her ad. In my picture. Some of that is true, but we won't say which part. <laughs> you know, I was struck by how the beginning of your career as a writer intersected with your career as a flight attendant. So scribbling in the galley, of course, but also I think really importantly, visiting places on the road that allowed you to sort of visualize a different life for yourself. I mean, I think you have to be able to see yourself into the future before you can take the first step into the future, right? Um, can you talk specifically, uh, I, maybe it was that I'm a writer too, that I was uh, particularly impacted by this in your book, but can you talk specifically about the impact of visiting independent bookstores when you were on the road? I, I know you mentioned specifically Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle. Yes, yes. You know, I had this dream of being a writer. People could tell me ways to become a flight attendant, you know, where to get the, the applications and help me fill them out and give me advice about interviews. But no one I knew in my little town could help me become a writer. No one knew how to do that. I, I grew up in a town where, as my guidance counselor told me, people don't do that, Anne. They don't become writers. And so 
I was sort of left to figure it out on my own. And I remember being in San Francisco, which in my early months as a flight attendant was the city I flew to most often. And I had grown pretty confident finding my way around San Francisco and seeking out the things that I had read about. And one of those was City Lights Bookstore. You know, they, they published Allen Ginsberg and so, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and so many people. And I remember going into that bookstore and like being hit with history and poetry and wondering how would I ever fit into this world, you know, not ever imagining that someday my book would be up on one of those shelves. It was almost intimidating and exhilarating at the same time. But years later, when I was a flight attendant, TWA had launched um, flights to Seattle. It was something new for them. And it was so exciting. We always stayed at beautiful hotels downtown. And I remember walking, never having heard of Elliott Bay, you know, one of the best independent bookstores in the country, but I had never heard of it. it honestly, it seems like a mirage or something. I saw this glowing <laughs> light and I saw people inside at chairs listening to a writer give a reading. And I just remember, you know, kind of being like the kid in the candy store and wondering at that point I had started writing what would become my first novel somewhere off the coast of Maine and trying to imagine me up there reading about my character of Sparrow and my character of, of Claudia, you know, these characters that I lived with every day and loved. And another time I went in when the reading wasn't going on and I looked at the books on the shelves and I thought some of these writers who I loved were not that much older than I was. And it seemed just out of grasp, my grasp, but also almost attainable. And it was just so empowering. And of course, Three Lives Bookstore, which was my local one, I lived in Greenwich Village, going into that bookstore to hear Laurie Colwyn read is one of the you know, most important nights of my life because I, I arrived late and probably rushing in from a flight because I was always rushing in or out of JFK. And I arrived late. It was sleeting out. And they had these old heaters and the whole room smelled like wet wool, you know. And Lori Collin was sitting at the front and the owner or someone, the person in charge of the, the reading was kind of a little upset that I arrived, you know, maybe a minute late. And she pointed to the only seat left and it was literally on the floor at Lori Collin's feet. Whoa. <laughs> and I was like, whenever you need a metaphor handed to you, here it is, right? <laughs> But I also remember that at the end, I clutch, you know, I got one of her books, I bought it, and I was clutching it, and I was too overwhelmed and too shy to ask her to sign it. I left. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> so anyway, um, bookstores, learning about independent bookstores, going to them, really helped me envision this dream of mine coming true. That's awesome. I love that story. God, and Lori Coleman, whoo. Right. So you mentioned at the end of the book, we're going to go there, yeah. how, how the, the P word and the ensuing worldwide shutdown grounded you for the first time in decades. I think we all felt a sense of being confined, but I can only imagine that a former flight attendant, what that would have made you feel like. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you after so many years of traveling to suddenly stop and then what it was like to be have the world open up again? Oh. I love this question, Ron. I, Michael will attest to the fact that it is very hard for me to stay put. I, and the funny thing is I'm quite a nester. Like I love the places I live and I like my things. And, you know, I, I love obviously writing and that's a very, you know, private thing that you do in your home. 
but I just am always dreaming of the next, next place to see and how I can get there and what I can do there and what I can eat there. And it stopped so suddenly. We had so many trips planned that year. Tickets bought to London for research for a book on savory pies that Michael's writing. Oh. A trip to Ecuador, where his friends had invited us to come. Uh, a trip to Ireland. We had just, I mean, we had so many fabulous international trips. And as I was, you know, disbanding all our planning and get it, try, you know, on my computer getting refunds and I've never has anybody so readily given you your money back. You, <laughs> you get it back. You get it back. I was feeling more and more like you're in one of those rooms where the walls are kind of, you know, closing in on you like in a horror movie. Um, I think the fear of being outside for many months, I didn't really think about, oh, I can't really go anywhere because outside seemed kind of scary for a while. Yeah. But then I just started saying, "It's where can I go when? And one day in this little window of time before like Omega or something came, <laughs> I get an email from some you know newsletter I subscribe to where you could go to Madrid for a $182 round trip. And I was like, oh, I'm, what? Wow. I'm going soon. And I looked at Michael and I said, want to go to Madrid? And he's like, no, that's, that's <laughs> not what he said. It was a second when he woke me up with these words. It's not going to cost that much. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever came next. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So in this little window, I mean, we went to Madrid for like five days. We had to get tested before. We have to get tested to enter, to leave. So much testing. But there I was in this beautiful city, eating all this tapas, this great food, looking at art, walking around. And I, I just felt like finally, and then we get home and I said, it was a week later, everything shut back down. Uh, that, that fed my, fed my need, you know, fed my soul. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. Do you think there were ways in which having to stay in place changed your perspective the way that seeing the world had changed it years before? I mean, both were sort of changes in the way you experienced the world in sort of different directions. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was looking for some deep insight, Anne. No. I'm just joking. <laughs> the most wonderful part, which doesn't have anything to do with traveling or staying home or whatever was that my adult child, who I never thought would live with me again until I was, you know, old and needed him to take care of me, <laughs> moved in with us. And so to have my family with me yeah. uh, was, you know, I just never expected that. So for me, that was one of the positive things that came out of this terrible experience. And, and in a way, and maybe this is, uh, answers your question in a different way, the fact that I was writing a book about a time in my life when I went anywhere and everywhere all the time really helped me in those days when I couldn't go any, I mean, I couldn't even go to the grocery store, right? We're washing our boxes in the hallway. Mm -hmm. But every day for a couple of hours, I was, you know, in Cairo writing about that great layover I had there, my romantic adventure in Lisbon. I mean, I did travel in a way because of flight. Yes. Well, you took us there too, through your words. Absolutely. Now, you and Michael recently shared a pub day, which is really cool. I mean, how often do you get to do that? No, we so didn't before, realize it until, that week. until the week off. Are you kidding? <laughs> really? <laughs> so there was no rivalry and fighting then? No, no, no planning of it. No. Completely <laughs> a big celebration. And before we get to Michael, can you tell us a little bit about Clementine? 
Yes. So I, I've had this, you know, kind of side career writing YA books and middle grade, which is slightly younger, that began with a 10 book series called The Treasure Chest about time traveling kids in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, very, it's like historical fiction, actually. And then after that, my editor and I were looking for what was the next thing to do. And as I, you probably know, in 2002, I lost my five-year-old daughter, Grace, very suddenly so to a virulent form of strep. And I, many of my adult novels have explored all the different avenues of grief. You know, sometimes it's head-on and other times it's other kinds of losses. But I'd never written about that for children and never thought about it. But my really wise, wonderful editor at Penguin suggested that I might be ready to do that. And I wasn't resisted, but I just wasn't convinced. But my son was eight when Grace died. And I remembered how there were no resources for him, really. Right. You know, all of the books about grief were about losing your grandfather or your pet. Mm -hmm. Right? And I thought, you know, I think Francesco, my editor, is right. It's time to be brutally honest about this experience. And so I wrote Jude Banks, Superhero. And part of that book is that he go, his parents kind of insist on him going to this grief group for kids who've lost siblings. And one of the characters, you know, like a secondary or even tertiary character in that book, she was just screaming to have her own story told. I mean, we got a lot of feedback about, tell us more about Clementine. And so I wrote about hers. She's um, older in high school and navigating very different things um, than Jude was. But I think her story is especially relevant because a lot of the things she's feeling, anxiety, depression, so many teenagers, as we know, it's a pandemic now because of that P word. And so the book, although it's about grief um, on the surface, it really talks about a lot of things that so many kids are going through right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing that because your books, all of them that, that are on this topic are great resources for me as a librarian because people come in and they're looking for something to help their teenagers, help their child, help themselves. Why? And there really isn't a lot out there that's really relevant, but you have kind of like You've explored this and really given a gift to people. And I can't wait to actually read Clementine because the other one was so good. And Thank you so much. Recommend it. Thank yeah. You. No, it's great. Okay. So switching quickly, we're going to move over and, and start talking to Michael. So, Michael, let's talk about the book of cocktail ratios. And can I tell you how stunning this book is? Oh, oh my you. God. <laughs> Uh, I agree. I agree. It's beautiful. For starters, though, let's tell everybody what the about the content of the book and share how the idea to pursue this already vital Barkhart reference book came to be. It, it really came to be again because of the pandemic. One of the things we did every day was to make a new cocktail each night for the four adults in our pod. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and we I picked up again doing a Friday cocktail hour every Friday with a video and then on Instagram lines, Instagram live. And we yeah, still do it. Yeah. And I, it was when I was doing so many cocktails, I realized how, how integrated they, they were that there's so many cocktails were the same cocktail with a different spirit. Right. Um, a Negroni is, uh, is a Boulevardier made with gin rather than with whiskey, for instance. And so I, I thought, you know, in this era of craft cocktails where we're getting increasingly complicated, complex drinks, we, should, we need to go back to the basics and see the foundation of where all these drinks come from and what makes them work and how they come together. And that's when I started writing the book of cocktail ratios, which looks at families of cocktails 
and the proportions of ingredients that distinguish one from another. It's so cool. I, I'm a, this is an aside, but I, I'm silently cursing you because you turned me on to wanting chartreuse again. <laughs> yeah, try to find it. Yeah, I'm kidding. Oh, I got it, Tom. Um, but it had to come from Australia through fruit. Oh, bad. my God. Oh, wow. Send some our way. I, really? Right? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send little uh, sips to people as a gift. <laughs> it's, it came yesterday. Uh, I had a thing last night I was doing. I, was doing, I did a uh, cocktail demo. I did the last word so I could talk about your book. And what a delicious cocktail. I'd never had it or made it before. Yeah, so a fabulous cocktail. But after this book kind of came to be accidentally because of pirating. Wow, that's okay. Well, okay. I'd actually written yeah. this proposal and was un unable to sell the proposal. And I'd sort of put it on a back burner. We were going out to dinner here in Providence, and a friend who was a chef there said, Could you, do you have any ratios that you could bring to us? The cookbook ratio. The cooking, it's called uh, Ratio, the Simple Codes Behind the Craft of Everyday Cooking. It's about ratio right. and cooking. Uh, and I went to the Amazon page to get a couple of quick copies and saw that there was an audio book available. Only I, or the publisher, or my agent <gasps> had not sold this, or allowed this, or anything. Oh, oh no! So, I'm sitting here with my ha mouth hanging open. I can't believe it. Guy is reading this book. It's like the worst reader you have ever heard. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is representing his wonderful book ratio, his wonderful cookbook. That's terrible. So I, I, I threw a, a contact. I didn't have any more contacts. It's the publisher Scrivener. So, but I got I got a name there. Who they said talk to this person. And I did. And she said, oh, my God, no, we did not allow this. We will get it taken down immediately. And then I wrote back to her by email and said, hey, wait a minute. Maybe if someone wants to pirate it, it's valuable and we should do our own. And the woman wrote back and said, that sounds like a possible idea. Are you working on anything now that we could piggyback oh. with? And I thought, well, maybe because I've got this idea for a ratio cocktail book. And, uh, but I don't know who I'd send it to at Scribner. I don't know anybody there. And she said, well, you'd send it to me. And <laughs> then I Googled it and it was, I was talking to the executive editor of Scribner. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> the Wyatt's department. Anyway, she read the proposal. She loved it. At the same time, I, I was sent some work, uh, some watercolor illustrations. It happened to be a cocktail from a DC artist named Marcella Kriebel. And I thought, hey, Kara, the editor at Scribner, how about if we just do this in watercolors? And oh. she saw Marcella's work and she said, I love it. Let's do it. And so the three of us really uh, came together put, to make this, make this book. And that's why it looks so beautiful. Scribner nice. went out of the way to give you know, have a heavy paper stock and a beautiful cover. It's Marcella's stunning. illustrations and, and paintings are just gorgeous. And of course, I'm very proud of the words. <laughs> yes. Well, you're such a great writer. And I mean, I've read your fiction and the book home. Oh, my God. It's all in there. Why are ratios so important? Because they, they show us the essence of a recipe. You know, you can look at 10 different re recipes and they're just a list of ingredients. When you understand a recipe in terms of the ratio, you see that it's, it's, it's a... It's not a list of ingredients. It's one ingredient, the proportion of one ingredient relative to the other ingredients. Gotcha. So, you know, cake, cake and crepes are a great example of that, of this, of one continuum knowing the ratio. A crepe and a cake are really the same thing. Uh, it's just a crepe has the proportion of liquid is much, much uh, higher than in a cake. Take away some of the liquid and you've got pancakes. Take away a little bit more liquid, you've got cupcakes. 
Um, and these are all ratios. When you know a ratio in the cocktail world, say the Manhattan ratio, two parts spirit, one part sweet vermouth plus bitters. Then you know a range of cocktails. You know the Rob Roy, which is a scotch-based Manhattan. You can make a Distrito Federale or a tequila Manhattan, a Palmetto, which is a rum Manhattan. You know these ratios. You don't know just one recipe. You know 100, if not more. That's wow. fabulous. And it's what it's exactly why your books resonate with people, in my opinion. You make it all make sense. Yeah. You, make, you make all of the food and the cooking and the all you make it all make sense. Rulemans 20 is something I give to everybody as a wedding gift. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, my goal is to simplify. We yes. make things unnecessarily complex. And when you simplify them and understand them, then you have a solid base from which to explore and vary whatever you happen to be doing. How nice to be able to simplify something, though, in a book that looks like this, that feels like this, that mm -hmm. has the beautiful writing, that has the beautiful illustrations. I mean, it's simplicity plus beauty, which is just fantastic. You know, Michael points out that um, one of the smart things Scribner's did is it doesn't have a paper cover. The, the front is the book, oh, yeah. right? Because yeah. you're making cocktails, it's gonna, the cover's going to get ruined. And so it's, 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 true. Right? it's a great <laughs> it's true. idea, very smart. It yes, you are absolutely right. Well, I'm wondering how you decided exactly what to include and focus on in the book, as well as how it would be arranged. Can you talk us through a little bit of that? Sure. I, I, knew, I knew I wanted the classic cocktails, and I just looked at my favorite cocktails, and they would all fall into a category. So we have the Manhattan, as I mentioned. Then we have the daiquiri, which is rum, simple syrup, and lime, and that's a basic sour. Uh, that gives us, we're going to do it today on the Friday cocktail hour. That will give us a gimlet as well as a daiquiri. It will give us any number of sours. Then there's a margarita, which is a, is a sour, which is sweetened with a liqueur, an orange liqueur. So that will give you the margarita. It will give you um, the sidecar. It will give you any number of different drinks that are spirit, lime, or lemon. Spirit, citrus, and orange liqueur. A range of fabulous cocktails. Then there is the Negroni, one of my favorite cocktails. Me too. <laughs> Gin and uh, sweet vermouth and Campari. Uh, and we have a martini family. We look at variations of the martini, the most written about cocktail there is. And then I also looked at highballs, the vodka and juice cocktails, the spirit and soda cocktails, and finally miscellaneous cocktails just to write about some are the cocktails that I love that don't really fit in any of these families, like the last word that we were talking about, yeah, yeah. Like, like the Mai Tai, which is usually a badly made drink, but when it's yeah. made right, it's absolutely fabulous. Delicious. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. We went to um, Hawaii last year and came back with a, an authentic Mai Tai recipe that we make a lot now, but just because it's, it's so different than what I think you think of as a, a, a Mai Tai, because you're right, it's, it's not always made correctly here. One of the things I like about this, though, is that not only is it a recipe book, but it's a book that gives you a jumping off point if there's a cocktail that you're already comfortable with. If it's the cocktail you order, you know, meal after meal, this gives you some ideas of where you could go from that sort of safe space, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it'll broaden a lot of horizons. Yeah. So you also recorded the audio version of the book. What is the process of translating the book to audio? It's, it's just like any other audio book. This one works, I think. At first, I didn't know if they were going to do it because I don't like reading recipes. But the recipes are so short. They're, they're almost like quick poems at the end of uh, a discussion of this cocktail. So I think that that works. And you sit in a booth and there's a sound engineer there. And then 
In my case, there was a woman in Paris who was serving as the producer, watching and listening to everything. And you're in Midtown Manhattan. And there's a town Manhattan. But it was really interesting. But it was it's fun. It took two it took two half days. It was fun to do, and I'm proud that you know we have an audible copy. I, I've heard from a lot of people so far who are loving listening to it. Yeah, actually, That's yeah, great. I actually have it, and I I started listening to it, and I I love the uh, clinking of the ice cubes in the glass, the sound effects, and so it's like a prompt to get me to go I <laughs> make a drink. Li- I haven't listened to the book, so I don't know about it. those were added afterwards. Oh, yeah, at least in the beginning, that's um, you, oh, you interesting. do your introduction and clink. <laughs> How about yeah, are there jet engines in mine? I don't know. I haven't listened. Or <laughs> <laughs> not. I've listened. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about the research. Was there anything beyond your own experience and your Friday cocktails that you had to do to learn more about these drinks to pull it all in? That's a good question. Yeah, I felt like kind of an imp- um, imposter. I thought I would get a lot of shit from people, from professionals saying, who, who is he? What does he know? Right. So I, I, I wisely befriended uh, several experts in the field to interview them, talk to them, get their thoughts. Have cocktails. Have cocktails. With them. <laughs> and, and that was really helpful. It gave me the confidence that I was, I was not steering anybody wrong. And I finally, at the end, had somebody who's become a friend, David Wondrich, who's the reigning cocktail historian in the country, the author of The Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. He read the book and he said, this is terrific. And he made one, he caught one error. Um, but otherwise, I, when he said, this is terrific, I love it. I was, I was elated, absolutely elated. You did it. So I, yeah, I reported, you know, did some reporting to make that's, sure everything was right. That's awesome. Awesome. Okay. Now we want to switch a little bit and talk about the two of you and your creative life that you've built. I want to start with the love story and the wedding. <laughs> The New York Times really did a fabulous article oh. about your 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 romance and your 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 wedding. And I shared this with Anne is um, a few months before you both got married. I was married in Washington Square Park. Oh, so it was, wild! <laughs> yeah, it was December, and you got you were April. So, right, right. Yeah, so it was so hysterical. So I, I really resonated with me your story. So you mind sharing an overview of that for everybody? It's been a long time coming. I first met Anne, but she doesn't remember it at Bread Loaf Writers. <laughs> I was an aspiring novelist. I wanted to write fiction, and I'd gotten a scholarship to this most prestigious writers' uh, conference. And I, I, I saw her walking down the path in front of the Breadloaf Inn, and I called out. I don't know why I did this. Why I singled her? I, I, honestly, that's something I don't know. It was uh, 1988. 88. I called. I was 24. She was. We don't have to talk about age. <laughs> 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 I, would have been, I got to turn 25. Uh, I called out uh, Ms. Hood and she turned around and said, yes. She's, I said, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Michael Roman. She says, what, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write fiction. And she leaned down to me and said, you will. And then she walked away and I didn't see her again for 20 years. <gasps> oh, that's Awesome. Oh, my goodness. I followed her career, and uh, ultimately, I I did become a writer, and I did publish. I was became uh, well-known in in the type of writing that I was doing, mainly culinary. Right. And I was asked to do a a keynote for a workshop weekend in Sugar Falls. Yeah, Sugar Falls. And I saw saw that Anne was going to be there. And when I went up to do my keynote, keynote speech, I looked at Anne, 
And the first thing I said was, she doesn't know this, but I've been in love with Ann Hood for 20 years. <laughs> I had never heard of this guy. I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, usually people say they're in love with me. I know them. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> but I have to say it was another maybe 10 years before we were both at the Miami Book Fair. Mm-hmm. At, at that Chagrin Falls event, we exchanged whatever it was back then, emails or whatever. Uh, but we very rarely connected with each other. You know, I, if I was going to be, I looked him up and I realized, oh, well, this guy's pretty well known. So if I was going to be in a city and I wanted a restaurant recommendation, I might text him or something, but it was really very infrequent. And about 10 years later, we were at the Miami book fair together. And Michael said, I see you're here. Do you want to have a cocktail? And I remember I had a dinner. So like we squeezed in this hour. And in that hour, we learned that we both had apartments in New York city around the corner from each other. Wow. So, I mean, this is like fate saying, you two have got to wake up. I have done everything I possibly can to bring you together. You you know, five years away from each other in New York City. And so uh, (laughs) it was shortly after that that. Yeah, a couple, but a couple of years. Still four years. A few years later, Anne's promoting. um, Uh, One of my novels and my my, um, publicist said that, she was trying to expand my readership and thought a food writer might be an interesting person to take me to dinner and interview me about my Italian you know, background. And she, I said, I don't know any food writers. You know? And she said, well, I was thinking of someone like Michael Rollman. And I said, oh, he'll do it. I know him. <laughs> he said, let's do it Sunday. The rest is history. That's awesome. I love that story. Oh, my goodness. Like you couldn't write it better. 10 blocks right. or 15 blocks from Washington yes. Square. And you had a pretty uh, amazing officiant. Yeah, Laura Lippman, the writer Laura Lippman married. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I highly recommend her. She did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if she's for hire. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, the two of you share so much on social media and in your newsletters, all showing so much support for each other's work your opinions, your favorite recipes, and so much more. So can you talk to us a little bit about what drives you to be so open about your lives? And also, maybe you can tell us where listeners can join in the fun. Tell them about your Substack. Well, yeah, I started a couple years ago. I started a Substack newsletter, rulman.substack.com. And it sort of took the place of, you know, blogging. I used to love blogging because it was a way to connect with readers. I like to connect with readers. So we started this newsletter and people are, are really liking it. We talk about food issues and recipes and cocktails, but also about what we're reading and what we're watching and um, great links that we find over the ensuing two weeks because it comes out every Saturday, every other Saturday. You know, it's wonderful to, to spend all your time with someone who's so simpatico. Yes. Because we do really share all these things with each other, what we're reading, what we're thinking, what we're watching. You know, our, our routine in the morning is an hour to two hours doing just that, reading stuff to each other, sending links over to each other, even though we're side by side, um, <laughs> but before we start our work day. And so it's lovely to have that in your life in general and yeah. lovely to be able to share it with people who like our, like our writing and read our books. Yeah. And, and Anne is a, a fabulous editor and I'm just so lucky to be able to send my, my first draft pages her way. And she is a, a fantastic reader and she cuts right to the chase and does not hold back any punches. And when she does like something, I know that it's okay because <laughs> I trust her. She's got great ideas about where to go from here. We talk about our stories. 
I read her drafts of her novels, which I love doing, and we talk about them. So it's it's a very much collaborative life that we lead. It's true, wow. and it shows. It shows in all yeah. all aspects. As I, I do, I read your newsletter. I have to admit, and I love <laughs> I love when you convince each other to try something new to watch or to read that you you might not have already had on your radar. Uh huh. Yeah, that happens a lot. Well, you know, we have to we have to collaborate and convince each other to like similar things because our apartment in New York City, where we spend most of our time now that my daughter is away at college, is 411 square feet. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and we're both writers, so we both work at home, and we have two cats. And so um, we better be simpatico. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that's why we see so many posts of you out eating at restaurants and enjoying (laughs) the life. (laughs) Enjoying the life. So often on this podcast, we ask our guests to offer a writing tip. But I feel like with the two of you, what we would much prefer is a tip on living life because you're just so full of life and the zest for life. And so can you just share a tip for people that that, uh, need to get more out of life? Mine is, I don't even have to think about it, always say yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Always say yes. Madrid, $182 round trip. Yes. There you go. Right? Yeah. yeah, but always say yes. I'm up for anything all the time. And it has served me very well. I've had so many adventures and experiences and now this wonderful man to share them with me. So, awesome. uh, and, and I would say something similar. And for me, every good thing that's happened to me is because I showed up somewhere. I didn't stay inside. I, I got there. I went there. I, I, I got jobs because I, I showed up when I didn't expect to show up. So it's, that's the same as saying yes. It's not saying, no, I can't make it or no, I can't do this. So I guess it's almost exactly what you're saying is go up. That's where that, how your life changes and moves forward. And of course, I would have to add, if you're at bread loaf and someone calls your name, don't walk away so fast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. What <laughs> <laughs> <Bloody> years? <laughs> so, so we're so close to your pub dates for these things. But do you each have projects that you're working on that you can share or talk about? Yeah, you tell them that. Sure. I'm finishing up a book of on savory pies. Um, uh, that'll that's uh, down the line. I've finished a YA novel. For a penguin workshop. It's, it's fabulous. It's about a fabulous. 16-year-old boy from Shaker Heights, a, a little privileged, who br- breaks his leg and is forced to become a cook at a restaurant on Larchmere. <laughs> and this changes his life. That's coming out next summer. That would be out next summer. Okay. And out this August is a book called Cleveland Noir. It's a series that Akashic publishes, and I'm the editor along with Misha Hedden. Yes. And we have uh, about 14 Cleveland writers Cleveland-born writers in the book. It's a book, a collection of noir short stories. I and I'm very it. much looking forward to it. Some of the great uh, Paula McLean's in it. McLean. Nice. Mary Grimm. Yeah. Pretty. Pretty, yeah. Oh. Fabulous. Quite a lineup. This series yes. is fabulous. I edited Providence Noir many years ago, but there's they take like Baltimore, L.A., all of them, and they just... And, this is just adding so much to this series. It's fabulous. Yeah, Cleveland's a perfect city to be yeah. covered. And I can't believe they haven't done it yet. Well, that I was I, I, we got this because of Anne, because of Anne's association with the publisher, Johnny Temple. Yeah, he's a friend, and I couldn't believe they didn't have Cleveland Noir, and I was like, I have the perfect editor for you. Yes. <laughs> so that's so out of order. I'm a slacker. I do have one novel coming out next summer. <laughs> <laughs> An adult novel called The Stolen Child. 
which is about an unlikely friendship between an old man who is dying and a young woman trying to change her life. And they set out to unravel a mystery that occurred when he was 18 years old. I'm in already. I'm in. I am in on all of these, all of these projects. Yes. Oh, I can't wait to read all of them. Well, you two, we could do this for hours, but for now, we cannot thank you enough for giving us a glimpse into your work and your lives. Truly, you both inspired us. I hope everyone out there is feeling that way too, and we'll rush out and buy your books because they're so good. And yes. we just, we really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. So thank much. you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm glad we finally made it happen, Ron. I know, right? And uh, <laughs> just on a final note, I'm happy to host any of your Cleveland events for any of your work that any of oh, you want to okay. do. So Wonderful. just reach out. I'm there for you. And we just put in a culinary kitchen too. So if you wanted to mix it up and do a f- cooking demo with food, we're in. Oh, oh that's fantastic. That. Well, I'll definitely be in touch about that. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Yes. And a huge thank you to our listeners. We love that you tune in and meet our fascinating and talented guests each week for a copy of Fly Girl. And the Book of Cocktail Ratios and Clementine, visit our Friends in Fiction Bookshop.org store and receive a discount while helping indie bookstores. We're so grateful you're here. Tune in next week and please bring a friend along. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.